The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, August 15th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Check this out. No, seriously, ch- check it out. Oh, man, just, just tell me if this scans. Oh, I hate these self-checkouts at the supermarket, at the drugstore. I mean, they do work. I got to admit, they work for like 75% of all items, which means since I'm usually buying more than five items at a time, they don't work. They mostly do not work. And now researchers back me up. The study, Developments in Retail Mobile Scanning Technologies, Understanding the Potential Impact on Shrinkage and Loss Prevention, is about iPhone technology, but it also applies to the machines at the front of the store, the machines that replaced Davey, the checkout guy. Actually, they probably replaced Davey and Inez and Gertie, all the checkout crew. And there in their stead is Haley, the flustered teen who has that key card on the retractable string on her waist, and she's constantly running around from machine to machine to see what didn't scan. Beep, 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 beep. Manual override. Oh, this was mismarked. Why is Captain Crunch showing up as an age-restricted item? Ah, the Crunch Berries. Nanny state. So the study focuses mostly on how the honor system isn't enough to thwart the heightened theft associated with these machines. Beep, beep. Because the corporation that can Davey, Ines, and Gertie and replace them with flustered teen Haley, oh, that corporation has such honor, right? We, the customers, we have to adhere to the honor system. But them, they could be cruel capitalists. The report posits that these machines, quote, give offenders ready-made excuses for non-scanning behavior. The self-scan defense, giving customers the freedom to self-scan gives them the opportunity to blame faulty technology, problems with the product barcodes, or claim they are not technically proficient as reasons for non-scanning. Here's an alt explanation. There are problems with the barcode. The technology is faulty. The report goes on to note that prosecuting a non-scanner is harder than busting a dude with a Christmas ham down his pants because it's hard to prove intent. When is the non-scanning a conscious act? When is it, as is the case with some of my non-scanning, a statement, a political statement? See, this is what goes on with me. I just want some milk. The barcode is down. Why are you not scanning? Okay, I just, at this point, I'm going to assume it was scanned. I heard a bunch of beeps. There may be some words saying did not scan, did not scan. But what am I, Steve Wozniak over here? I don't know how these machines work. I beep, beep, beep a bunch of times. Charge me for the milk. If you don't charge me for this milk, how is that on me? That should be on you. What's the worst case scenario? I rip off the store and they decide that cashiering three cashiers and providing their customers a frustrating experience is maybe not the best way to be a store. If I were to send that message as a result of this great lactose caper, would you still say I've committed an immoral act? When a business makes not stealing harder than stealing, I'm going to say that's a bad business. The business gets what the business deserves. And that is how whole milk becomes skimmed milk. On the show today, I spiel about Trump, truth, and fact-checking. Why bother, right? I'll tell you why. Because like scanning your milk properly, it's the right thing to do. But first, here's Maria Konnikova with another round of Is That Bullshit Topic? Clothes Make the Man. 
If it is true that clothes make the man, then I've been made by a pair of van sneakers without any socks. I have to admit, a cat peed on my regular shoes. All right, that aside, is it true that clothes make the man or the woman or that clothes and dressing actually changes who you are, how you act, how others perceive you? Or is that indeed bullshit? Maria Konnikova is here. She is the author of The Confidence Game. She is an expert in scientific claims, and she adjudicates those claims and says, is that bullshit? Now, people have always made these sort of claims about the uh, positive effects of dressing, uh, dressing with clothes, not salad dressing. But what do you want to look at them sort of in the realm of psychology? I guess that's the way to go yeah. about this most yeah. systematically, Maria. Yes, I, I think so. I was surprised to learn a new term as I started researching whether or not clothes really make the man. So it was coined here in New York City at Columbia University by Adam Galinsky. Actually, yeah. he was at Northwestern at the time. So in Chicago yeah. at Northwestern uh, University. In by Evanston. Or Evansville? Yeah, Evanston by Adam Galinsky and Hey Joe Adam. And the term is enclosed cognition. Enclosed, not enclosed. Enclosed enclosed cognition. Yes. This is good. They're trying to clothes. Yeah. Um, And now, obviously, this comes from a term that most psychologists are familiar with, and I think a lot of non psychologists these days, which is embodied cognition. So, so do you. So do you actually, does how you act physically, does your body affect your mind? So if I, you know, pretend to be strong, for instance, if I hold something that's very heavy, am I going to feel more weighty? Am I going to feel more serious? There has been work on this for decades, and it's been very controversial for decades. Yeah. My first blush reaction, it seems like magical thinking, that if you hold a mirror, you'll be self-reflective or something. It seems, it also seems entirely based on, not entirely, but largely based on a culture's synonyms. What words are synonymous with other things? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there is, there's a lot in, in what you say. Now, I think some of the earliest studies that led people to believe that embodied cognition might be a thing yeah. were done by Schachter and Singer. These are probably some of the most famous studies in 20th century psychology. And what they did was give people adrenaline, but mm-hmm. they didn't tell them it was adrenaline. They just gave them a shot. Now, today we know that they gave them ridiculous amounts of adrenaline. They didn't realize how much yeah. we needed. So. I mean, it's off the charts, yeah. crazy yes. amounts, or what we call today, half a Red Bull. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so that's what they gave them. Yeah. And then they had them be in a waiting room, and they made them wait. And there was a confederate in the waiting room. So confederate, someone who is not actually in the study, but is yeah, helping. Yeah, not actually in the confederate army. Exactly. So it wasn't Stonewall Jackson. Yes. Okay, continue. Um, and then they had the confederates act in different ways. Um, so Ooh, I want to be a confederate. Confederate one of these things. That sounds good. <laughs> so sometimes they But I'd get... give the game away by like <laughs> demanding a charge in Gettysburg or something. But yeah. go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, Mike, you wouldn't be a good confederate. No, no. Let's take that hill, man. <laughs> yeah, So sometimes the confederate would get really angry. Other times he'd be very happy and just get excited. He would do different things. And the people who were there would mimic his emotions Mm -hmm. and actually would start feeling that way. And so they said, oh, like the the physiological presence of adrenaline doesn't actually tell you 
how you're going to feel. You're going to take external clues. And then once you act that way, you're actually going to start feeling that way. And then there were some interesting studies that were done with pencils where you had to hold pencils in your mouth. Yeah. And sometimes you would be smiling and other times you would be frowning depending on how you were holding them with your teeth. And people who were smiling became happier and people who were frowning became sadder. Okay. And in all these cases, they had no idea that they were being manipulated. So people thought, oh, you know, we actually look at ourselves and we look at our surroundings and then we determine how we feel. Right. Um, so I've, you know, act happy and you'll be happy. Exactly. I've heard that advice. Exactly. Now, this is act as if. Although Let, it does seem that first study has flaws. With, yes, there were lots of flaws in with, the first with studies. Adrenaline makes you act like someone else. Yeah. Or, or, um, there, were, anyway. there were flaws. It, it was an interesting idea, and okay. these were great psychologists, but this back was a long time Civil ago. War times. It was yeah. back during the Civil War, yeah. yeah. So a lot of this work has come under scrutiny because people think, you know what, this is all well and good, but there does seem to be some sort of element of wishful thinking and embodied cognition. Mm -hmm. And can you really, you know, how can you really prove this? How do you actually know what's going on? And how do you know that it's not some other mechanism? You know, it's, it's really hard to, it's really hard to actually say for sure that how you act impacts how you feel. And I think the most recent iteration of this is the work on power posing, because yes. that's that's actually the exact same thing, that if you pose in a powerful way, then you start feeling more powerful. And a lot of these studies show hormone, hormonal changes or say they show hormonal changes. And you know what? They might be true. But all, all I want to say is that all of this embodied cognition work, it, it comes in waves. Yeah. People sometimes think it's good and people sometimes think it's not so good. But that's exactly what these Northwestern psychologists were trying to figure out when they said, well, then does how you dress actually change how you feel? Putting aside if the embodied cognition works, I definitely can see the analogy between that and, yeah. well, it's only a step. If I stand all confident with my arms akimbo, yeah. what if I dress like a exactly. confident business Exactly. Man? I mean, you always hear that, you know, dress for the job you want, mm -hmm. not the job you have. Yeah. Yeah. I've been uh, dressing like a major league baseball player for years now. People just think I'm nuts. Excellent. That also, explains like, a lot. Yeah. If you're not a member of the bar and you dress like a Supreme Court justice, I don't think that'll ever happen. Should I should I throw out my powdered wigs? <laughs> well, yeah, especially if you don't <laughs> want to be in an English uh, Supreme Court. Another one, Olympic diver. Mm. Like a, especially if you live in Minnesota, there are so many flaws to <laughs> dressing like the job you want. Yes, yes, I can, I can definitely see that. So they, in this in initial study, what they did was actually make people wear white coats. Uh huh. And what they found was that they acted both like. Insane people and doctors. <laughs> Tell me. That it increased selective attention and sustained attention when you describe that coat as a doctor's coat as okay. opposed to as a painter's coat. Okay. So if someone thought that they were wearing a doctor's white coat, it actually made them analytical, more mm -hmm. doctor-like. But if they thought that it was just a painter's coat, then it had no effect. So this is really, this is actually kind of interesting because it's not just what you're wearing, but how you perceive what you're wearing. And we've seen a few different studies like that over the last few years. So it's not just white coats. There was one, and big grains of salt dropped into these that showed that if you wear formal business attire, you become better at long-term strategy. 
and abstract thinking uh-huh. because presumably you think of yourself more as a businessman. Yeah, except now, no one's, a lot of businessmen are terrible right. at abstract thinking. <laughs> yes. No one knows why this stuff is yeah. actually working. It might be just because these concepts are activated in your mind. It might be because you feel like you should be you know, giving a certain type of performance when you're dressed in a certain way. It might be physiological. You really might have hormonal changes. It's really hard to tell. And the data not only have been all over the place, but some studies have, you know, they, they have rebuttals and counter rebuttals. Um, and it's a, it's a messy literature. It's actually one of the messiest areas of psychology. I would say some of the rebuttals were done by people who were dressed in lab coats <laughs> with stethoscopes, but the counter rebuttals might have been done by people who were carrying battering rams at the time. <laughs> and then also this leads me to a question. Well, what if you wear a tuxedo? Will that include acts of being debonair, but yeah. also so an inclination to get people more cold water. Yeah. Yeah. Can yeah. go one of two ways. It absolutely could. Yeah. Well, and that actually show, says one thing that has been shown pretty consistently, which is that we judge other people based on what they look like. Mm-hmm. So first impressions really do matter. So if you are showing up for an interview and you're dressed to be, you know, an Olympic diver, yeah. and this is a business interview, you might yeah. not get hired, um, even if all your answers are spot on. Yeah. Because my first impression of you is, wait, you're dressing for a job as an Olympic diver. Right. Not but what if you like interlace the interview with, you know, I think we could springboard this company <laughs> into the next quarter, or what we're going to be doing is multi-level platforms. Right? I don't like to make waves. I like to go in head first. I say go for it. Go for the gold. I feel like yeah. this can go on indefinitely. Uh, it can make a splash. So so people do make very rapid judgments about other people and how they're dressed affects that. It doesn't just affect whether or not I'm going to hire you. It affects what I think your status is in society. But that's very socially determined. So in the past, people who wore business suits were seen as very high status. These days, if you're wearing a hoodie or a black T-shirt, you're probably seen as having the the higher status. just invented Facebook. Exactly. Exactly. Or Apple or or whatnot. Um, So you you probably invented something big. And indeed, there was one study that showed that people who were ranked the highest were people who had one non-conforming article of clothing. So let's say a business suit plus sneakers. They thought that that guy <laughs> was more uh, subtle, right? Was more important somehow because he can get away with it. But then you start getting into all of these reverse psychology types of things. So if you know this, then shouldn't you feel higher status if you wear a sweatshirt? And then shouldn't you actually be performing at higher levels and have increased abstract thinking in a sweatshirt as opposed to a suit. That study, to my knowledge, has not been done. But I would not be surprised if it all really depends on what people's expectations are of of different types of outfits and of different types of social signals. Um, I think that probably matters a lot. And, you know, if you put a business suit on me, I'm not going to feel powerful. I never wear suits. I'm probably going to feel very uncomfortable. Not even a pantsuit. Maybe you could run for president. I wasn't born here. Damn. So how many of these enclosed cognition studies have there been? There have been a handful. I want to say... 10, give or take, that I could find. And, now, and most is it of the them, thing that we talk about where if they don't show anything, they don't show up as having done the study? Yes, that's yeah. absolutely right. Talking about the Olympics, there was one actually done um, with Olympians. 
Um, and they looked at colors, yeah. where, whether different types of colors impacted performance. And they found that athletes who wore a red jersey got more could, fouls called on them. Could lift heavier weights. Really? Because they also have done the red jersey gets yeah. more fouls called on your study. Yes. But then that also is called into question. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But this was only 28 people. Uh-huh. And this is something that a lot of these studies suffer from, um, that we have very small numbers of people. Um, and it's really hard to control these studies well. And I actually think that a lot of the researchers who are doing work on this are really good and really interesting psychologists who have a lot of really creative ideas. I'm just not 100% sure that all of this work is going to hold up. I mean, priming, you had John Barge, who has tenure at Yale, and we've talked about social priming mm-hmm. in the past, the Florida effect and all of these things where you start acting old after reading old words. You know, these are all very similar types of things. And we know that a lot of the priming effects have been picked apart. And it doesn't mean that priming doesn't exist, just like it doesn't mean that embodied cognition doesn't exist or enclosed cognition doesn't exist. I just think that we can't make sweeping statements. Like, you can't say that wearing red is going to make you stronger than wearing blue. That's just, I think that that's a very, a very silly conclusion to draw because it depends on the person. It depends on the context. It's a very frustrating literature for me because there are lots of people I admire, but doing work that I'm not 100% sure I can be on board with. Yeah. Well, I think it's easier to make sweeping statements if we dress to say chimney sweeps for Mary yes, Poppins. Then we'd be more confident in our and, ability to do so. And if you sweep while doing it, you're embodying the motion of sweeping. Right. You get both will... enclosed and embodied. Exactly. You can be enclosed embodied cognition. The double, the double whammy, I think mm-hmm. I'll get you there. All right. So dressing for success or clothes making the man or the idea of enclosed cognition is that bullshit. We're not sure it's bullshit-ish. It has characteristics of bullshit. There are probably some elements of it that are accurate. Um, But I think that the more correct way of saying it is that what you're wearing makes an impression on other people more than it does on you. But if you're the kind of person who believes in the secret and that thinking makes it so. Like a track like. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And if you believe that clothes make a difference, and clothes will make a difference in the sense that you'll feel better about yourself. And we know that confidence is not bullshit, that when you feel more confident, you act more confident. So I think that it might not be bullshit for all people, but as of now, for sweeping generalizations, even if you're a chimney sweep, I would say it's bullshit-ish. Well, I never used to believe in the secret until I started dressing like Oprah, Mm. giving away cars trying to get Stedman to marry me, talking to Gal King. And then, you know, all the good stuff began to happen. Can I borrow your jet? <laughs> you can. You get a car. Maria Konnikova is the author of The Confidence Game. She walks us through scientific claims. She is the one who tells us if they're bullshit. Thank you so much, Maria. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. What is meaning? What is truth? 
Donald Trump has provoked these basic philosophical questions for which the country will, I'm sure, one day thank him. Last week, Trump laid out his economic plan, which is like saying my Basset Hound explained his goals to become an oceanographer, because it's not going to happen, and he's going to get distracted the next time he sees a squirrel. But that didn't stop the high-minded members of the media from treating the plan as as they do, which is to say high-mindedly, I guess to their credit. Let's just stick to our strategy, act as if Trump's stated policies actually were policies that he would honestly pursue if he ever got elected, which he won't. New York Times, upshot. Headline, how Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump differ on taxes. Well, we know Hillary pays them. That's one way they differ. Or the weeds, my beloved Panoply sister podcast, The Weeds. Dylan had told me, um, and I don't know where he got this, Dylan Matthews at Vox, that there was ambiguity as to whether or not you could duck this off of payroll taxes, which would make it a little bit more progressive if so. So this was where sort of the campaign's odd clarification came in, which implied that it could be deducted from payroll taxes. It Mm -hmm. did not give a lot of specifics about how that might work. I think I know why, because it's all imaginary. See, here's how it's going to work. All the Muslims who celebrated 9-11 on those rooftops, they'll all be paired off with a Democrat who's secretly rigging the Pennsylvania elections, and those people will all babysit your kids. Here's the real truth. It doesn't matter. There is no Trump tax plan. It's not written down anywhere. It's going to change the next time he's asked about it. It's like what the laws of Scientology were the second day L. Ron Hubbard invented the idea. I mean, maybe I should be giving credit to Ezra Klein and the rest of the gang at the weeds. They're doing their job. They're getting into the weeds here. But come on, these aren't weeds. This is the Florida Everglades. Just hire an airboat and get the hell out of there. Do anything else with your time. For the love of God, play with your kids. Read a book. Take your shoes off in a meadow and exhale. Pokemon Go. Really, anything. So what's the alternative, you ask? If we don't waste our precious energies and mental fluids on plans that can't happen because Trump won't be elected, maybe then we should at least pay attention to the election, why he's flailing so much before voters. The truth is he has no focus. He has few general election skills. Can't get out of his own way. Which leads to questions like this one posed on NPR's Morning Edition about the emails from donors to the Clinton Foundation requesting access to State Department officials. Let us listen and this is really, let's think about what's going on here. The shift, if he would wants things to change in the polls, the campaign needs to start being about Hillary Clinton and her emails and reminding voters why they don't like her. Koki, I mean, we have Republicans charging in this new, these new emails might suggest they say a pay to play system. I mean, going so far as to say if you gave to the Clinton Foundation, you might get favors from the State Department, even if Donald Trump chooses not to go after her aggressively. I mean, can she avoid this being a problem? No, uh, it just plays into the whole concept of the the Clintons, as they're referred to, uh, playing fast and loose with the rules, although uh, there have been uh, no incidents uh, uh, reported that, uh, in fact, the State Department did any favors for any of the people who were emailing them. Okay, so it's fallen to the media to suggest that Trump is screwing up because he's not hammering his opponent on charges that they've got to admit have no proven merit. If the media wants to hang Clinton on the foundation emails, then come up with some damning facts, something actually to connect the requests to actual deeds. As of now, 
all of the revelations have been funneled to the public by the right-wing group Judicial Watch. And there's nothing wrong with that, I suppose. This is what Judicial Watch does. We expect Judicial Watch to interpret the emails in the most damning way possible. We understand why Judicial Watch is desperate to have Trump pick up their talking points. And we in the media do love conflict. But call me, I don't know, fuddy-duddy, if I think that armchair campaign managing that says, hit her with these unproven charges is like kind of unethical. Right now, I look at these Clinton Foundation email revelations as being in a phrase, powerful people wielding power. No laws seem to have been broken. The most serious accusation is that an important Nigerian-Lebanese billionaire and former political aide wanted to speak to Lebanese officials about the problems in Lebanon. Maybe that's proper. Maybe that's improper. Maybe he could have helped the Lebanese situation. But right now, there's no evidence the conversations ever actually happened. If Trump were hitting Clinton with these accusations, it would seem the sort of thing the media would be fact-checking and saying that Trump is being misleading. And I say this because I've been looking at these fact-checking sites, and it occurs to me, I mentioned this the other day, but it occurs to me that our fact-checking apparatus, our fact-checking infrastructure has an almost pathological aversion to clarity. There are a few sites, factcheck.org. It doesn't issue a shorthand pronouncement, so it does its job well. But PolitiFact and the Washington Post, when they write their articles, they also do a good job, but then they have a rating. And their ratings are crazy. They're daft. Or let us just say they do not align with my definition of truth. Let's go a few of these. PolitiFact. Donald Trump says American home ownership rate in quarter two, 2016, was 62.9%, the lowest rate in 51 years. Trump did say that. So are the stats accurate? PolitiFact looks them up. Yes, the facts are accurate and therefore they rate it mostly true. Well, what do you mean mostly true? He said some accurate facts. Well, PolitiFact writes how there are these demographic trends where millennials don't want to own houses as much and they have high debt. And so that explains why homeownership low. It doesn't matter. He said a fact that was true. We call that true. We shouldn't call that mostly true. The other side of the coin. Here's another one PolitiFact looked at. Hillary Clinton says Donald Trump called the U.S. military a disaster. So they found the quote. It was a pretty well-known quote. It happened during one of the Republican debates. He said, quote, our military is a disaster. So PolitiFact calls that mostly true. How is it mostly true? Well, at other times, he used other words other than a disaster. It doesn't matter. She accurately quoted the guy. Can we just call that true? Can we just call it true and end there without the qualifiers? Are you being better journalists because you throw an adverb in front of the word true? Here's another one. Hillary Clinton says, when an interviewer asked Donald Trump if he treats women with respect, Trump replied, I can't say that. All right. The interviewer was Howard Stern. Here is an extended and unedited clip from that interview from years ago. And you once said that uh, the best way to treat a woman is to treat her like duty. No, I never said that. But you I never was, did? It was attributed to me. But I'll tell you something. I agree with that statement. <laughs> they don't listen otherwise. I tell you, women are troublemakers. I couldn't get women. I don't get... You, what? Uh, shut up. <laughs> the dummies working here. So you never did say that? No, I never said that, but it was attributed to me. I see. So you treat women with respect? Uh, I can't say that either. All right, good. All right. 
somewhere yeah, in between. I, I do. I treat Guys, women. I treat women with great respect. Treat women somewhere in between respect and uh, doo doo. <laughs> All right, very good. Now let's get to the women. Let's see pictures. That's what I'm into. Okay. And then they were off showing pictures of lingerie models and ranking their bodies. So, is it true that when an interviewer asked Trump if he treats women with respect, Trump replied, I can't say that? You just heard it. Of course it's true. Don't you think PolitiFact would say that? No. You ready for PolitiFact's rating on this one? Mostly false. Why? Well, it's because he has such a lifelong record of treating women with respect. I don't know. It's because PolitiFact says... Uh, afterwards, he laughed and he said, oh, yeah, it is true. I don't know. To me, that is a totally fair and accurate quote. And in no universe is it mostly true. Let's go to the other big fact-checking site, the Washington Post. We move to Mike Pence. Mike Pence says on the campaign trail, I'm proud to be from the state that has the largest education voucher program in America. Washington Post rates this two Pinocchios, meaning... It's better than four Pinocchios, which is their worst rating. Four Pinocchios would be, I guess, a huge lie. Three Pinocchios, not quite as big a lie. Two Pinocchios seems like kind of a lie. So what's the lie that Indiana has the largest education voucher program in America? Well, they fact check it. Indiana has one voucher program, and that voucher program has more students in it than any other single program in any state that offers vouchers. Well, that seems true, but they do find that Ohio has four voucher programs. Actually, I did some research. I found five. And if you add up everyone in Ohio's four or five voucher programs, comes out a little more than Indiana. Fine, but I did some research on my own. One of these quote-unquote voucher programs is the John Peterson Special Needs Voucher. So that's kind of specific, and it's for children with special needs. And then there's an autism voucher program. So if you take those out of the equation... Ohio and Indiana are pretty much tied. Even if you leave those in the equation, Indiana has half the number of students that Ohio has, yet only a couple thousand fewer vouchers. So this seems really, really close to totally true. But the Washington Post gives them two Pinocchios. I simply do not see how you can pummel Pence for Pinocchios when the VP provided no perjury. Free Mike Pence. Strip him of his Pinocchios. Pinocchio, a boy who only ever dreamed of being real, possibly moving to Indiana and getting tuition assistance to attend a private school. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson stated that she prefers to exit stage left, which we rate as three snaggle pusses. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, complains that people treat him like he's invisible, which rates two snuffleupaguses on our snuffleupagus ometer Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, does not normally go in for subterfuge exaggeration or fibs, but he did create this show, and this show does, does do that. So he gets four Geppettos. The gist... Our use of the Revolutionary War soldier Jonathan Wellington Mudsy Muddlemore to solve crimes rates four funky phantoms. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.